Susanna Nagy, who's an infectious disease specialist who works at Duke University, but she really is sort of, I would say, a co-expert in liver disease related to hepatitis viruses, and in particular hepatitis C. Um, one thing I, I want to make clear is that um, for both my talk and her talk, and, and smattering elsewhere, um, what we're trying to do at this conference is bring people up to speed on emerging data. So by definition, everything you heard in my talk is off-label because the drugs I talked about are not approved. Uh, a lot of what, uh, there is no label. And, um, and what Susanna is about to talk to us about is the same way. And these are data that have been recently presented in both of our cases at recent CROI conference and other uh, meetings throughout the year. And just to reiterate, the purpose of this meeting is really to bring people up to speed not only on what exists, but what's coming. And every time we do our needs assessment, one of the top, in fact, probably the top requests that we get from audiences is tell us about what's on the horizon. And so that's what we um, are going to do now with regard to hepatitis C. To say that there's a revolution in hepatitis C drug development is an understatement. There are probably 60 plus drugs uh, in development of different stages. Of course, not all of them will make it to market, but very soon in the next probably nine to 12 months, you'll have an addition of two, three, perhaps four um, new agents, and Susanna is going to orient us to that because it's so easy to understand. Susanna, welcome. Absolutely. Great. Good afternoon, and thanks to everyone for being here. Um, so I know that about 10% of you were in the course yesterday. I see some familiar faces. So you guys are my plants. You're going to know all the answers to the questions. Um, I expect 100% from at least 10% of you. Uh, so, um, so yeah, the next 40 minutes or so for me are going to be to discuss the emerging therapies for HCV. For those of you who are practicing HIV, you know, 15, 20 years ago, this is going to be very reminiscent of that era and I think is equally exciting. And so hopefully that's going to be the takeaway point from this um, discussion. So let's, uh, let's get started. And I think we're going to start off with a question, which is the first interferon-free therapy for HCV genotype 1 infection will be FDA approved when? Um, in the next 12 months, the next one to three years, next three to five years, or why would anyone want to get rid of interferon? So some of you have clearly used that drug and understand that it is something we can't wait to get rid of. Um, so the, 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 the uh, majority of you, about two-thirds, said the next 12 months, um, and I wish that were true. Uh, I'm here to tell you that's not quite true yet. Um, and I think that certainly if you're following the New York Times as opposed to the most, Europe, most recent European liver meeting, you may answer one. But indeed, the answer is more likely to be two for genotype 1 infection. Um, so, let's, uh, so let's move forward on that. All right, so quickly, I just want to highlight, I know not all of you are active HCV treaters, so I do want to initially highlight um, the natural history of HCV in an HIV-infected host, and then ultimately just some basic virology about the mechanisms of action of these drugs. So it's no um, surprise to anyone in this room, you all know this, that co-infection is extremely prevalent um, across the globe, but certainly in our country, and, 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 and prevalence depends on what one's risk factor is for HIV and HCV transmission. Um, I practice primarily in the VA setting, where we actually have rates as high as 40 percent. Um, if you practice in Baltimore, where there's a heavy uh, population of IV drug use, then it can be as high as 90 percent in some HIV-infected populations. We know and have known now for some time that the um, mortality and morbidity associated with liver disease in the HIV-infected host is significant. Um, and as we have become better at managing their HIV, 
liver disease primarily related to their chronic HCV infection has emerged as a leading cause of death in this patient population. Um, in addition, cirrhosis and the complications associated with cirrhosis, even in the highly active antiretroviral era, and it's really hard to see this, but if I point here, um, it looks like we have our HIV-infected patients still have about a 70% increased risk of developing cirrhosis as compared to their hep C mono-infected counterparts. This is controlling their HIV. And so we don't have a great understanding of why this is. And I think there hopefully and continues to be a lot of research to focus on the reasons for this so that we can attempt to improve our patients' outcomes even more outside of controlling their HIV and treating their HCV. And this is actually data presented at Croy showing that our co-infected patients indeed utilize more health care with regards to emergency department visits, outpatient visits, than an HIV mono-infected or HCV mono-infected patient. And indeed, this is admissions. You can see that the rates of admission are significantly higher for a co-infected patient as well. So this is a very important population to prioritize with regards to HCV treatments. So this is the virus itself, and it is quite different from other viruses that are near and dear to everyone's heart um, in this room, including HIV and, and hepatitis B, which is, as you can see, there is no intranuclear phase for this virus. Um, and, and because of that, this is a virus that we can cure. We feel very strongly, and most of us who do this, that cure is the right word to use in terms of um, the virologic outcome that we are able to achieve, and that ultimately that cure clearly leads to decreased rates of significant liver disease, comorbidity and mortality, HCC, need for transplants, et cetera. Um, and it's this, at the translation, cleavage, and replication phases that are the focus of the HCV um, direct-acting antivirals. I'm going to show you quickly the virus itself. And if we look at the proteins that are the result of this translation and, and, and uh, cleavage, you have structural proteins which form the virus itself. And then you have these non-structural proteins, or NS proteins. And these are the proteins that are the site of action for these drugs. Specifically, we have the NS348 protease inhibitors, which two of which are FDA approved now um, and would be off-label use in an HIV-infected patient. We have the NS5A and the NS5B polymerase inhibitors. And I'm going to go into a bit more detail on each of these. And, and many of you, I think, um, will, will notice the similarities in terms of, uh, of HIV meds as well. So I do want to take one step back, because I know not all of you are HCV treaters. And if you're not, then some of these acronyms um, can just sound like a completely different language. And, and as we move through some of the trials, it's a little bit easier to follow. So pretty quickly, I want to just review a couple of things. If you have a patient who receives HCV therapy, they can have several types of virologic response, meaning monitoring their viral load, just like you do for HIV, and looking at how rapidly that viral load drops. So you can look and see that you can give someone interferon and ribavirin, and this is kind of how we make the, the, the develop the criteria for whether someone's previously treatment experience. And they can have minimal response within the first 12 weeks. And those patients will be called null responders, and really a population that is the most difficult to treat for us at this point in time. You can also have someone who's a partial responder, which is someone who had a greater than two log drop by week 12, but never managed to detect or to, to achieve an undetectable viral load by week 24. Or you can have someone who actually did become undetectable, and that person could become undetectable by week 12, by week 24, or they could be undetectable very quickly. And I really should lay off the coffee because I'm a little bit shaky here. Um, but they can become <laughs> detectable um, pretty quickly at week four, and even some patients at week two if you're checking. And these are patients who have rapid viral kinetics and clearly are very responsive to the interferon-based regimens. 
And the, this has kind of become, even before we had the new agents, we used something called response guided therapy, which was if someone had rapid viral kinetics, they were undetectable by week four, say they were a genotype two, you could argue with that patient who was not HIV infected that you could shorten their course of therapy from 24 to 16 weeks. Very good data to support that. Some people even said that if you didn't achieve this, um, then you should have an extended course of therapy, say you're a genotype one from 48 to 72 weeks. And so this was already something that we did. But with DAAs and with telaprovir and bocephrovir, this really became part of the paradigm of how we manage these patients in terms of deciding who can have a shortened course of therapy and who really needs a longer course of therapy. And that term was then named the ERVR, Extended Rapid Virologic Response. And of course, as I mentioned, the ESVR, Sustained Virologic Response, is our virologic surrogate for, for cure. It used to be SVR24, which was 24 weeks out from the end of treatment, and now recognized as an SVR12, given the positive predictive value of an SVR12 to a 24 is over 98%. And therefore, shortens the study duration and improves the timeline to getting access to these drugs for our patients. Okay, so the NSA protease inhibitors, again, telaprovir and bocephrovir being FDA approved as the first wave of these drugs. Um, these are serine protease inhibitors, so unlike the HIV aspartyl protease, they're very different in terms of their, their shape and, and, and form in the catalytic site, and so there's no interactivity whatsoever. Uh, these are highly potent agents, but within 14 days with monotherapy, patients all develop resistance. And so ultimately, we needed a backbone in HCV just the way we needed an HIV. The problem for telaprovir and bocephrovir, there were no other oral pills that they could use as backbones. And so interferon and arbovirin was the critical backbone that was required at that point in time. Now, luckily, as you'll see moving forward, we have multiple other drugs, other drug classes, and we no longer require interferon or ribavirin as part of that backbone. And, and ultimately, at some point in probably five years, they likely will be relatively obsolete in terms of the management um, of this disease. So the NS5B polymerase inhibitors come in two flavors, nukes and non-nukes. Um, and so if you think of the, this, this polymerase as a hand in terms of its structure, the non-nukes bind to finger and thumb regions, and the nukes bind to the central catalytic site. And it's the nukes that appear to be a very exciting drug class, given that catalytic site is highly, highly conserved. So they have a very high genetic barrier. And overall, they can be um, pan-genotypic, meaning they can cover all genotypes. Um, and we'll get into how that is working in the clinic, but our, our favored drug class for interferon-sparing or interferon-free regimens, as you'll see. And then finally, we have the NS5A inhibitors. This is, again, one of those non-structural proteins. Also very exciting, potent, um, a, a relatively moderate barrier to resistance, um, and also have activity that can be pangenotypic. So you can start seeing the ideas of the combinations of these drugs and how they could be used. And, and, and moving forward, I'd like to show you examples of how those combinations are performing uh, clinically in, in clinical trials. So let's look at um, maybe just one or two slides on bocephrovir and telaprovir. So I think this is actually very exciting. When you think about where we've come over a very short period of time, with genotype 1, PEG and RIBA, our previous care was about 40% cure rate. And now you can see that with DAA combinations, we're getting numbers over 90%, which is quite impressive. And that 90% is coming in 12 weeks, not 48. What is also, I think, extremely exciting is if you look at the numbers so far in an HIV co-infected population, whereas previously HIV was considered a baseline risk factor for poor response to therapy, we now are seeing with reports from phase two studies 
that the playing field is being leveled for our HIV-infected patients, and, and it is highly likely that HIV is no longer a baseline risk factor for poor response to treatment, which just makes it all the more critical to truly consider all of your co-infected patients for considerations of therapy uh, when at all possible. So this is um, something that Dr. Sag alluded to, which is the current pipeline for drug development for these drugs. And yesterday, um, the folks will have to hear the same joke over and over again, but I said, in order to keep up with this, you really need a running Twitter feed to know which drug is in and which drug is out and where they are in phase two or phase three. Uh, but ultimately, I think it's extremely exciting for our patients. And we now have two drugs approved and two more drugs submitted to the FDA for approval, um, which uh, means better outcomes for our patients all right, so a question for you all. The current triple therapies, telaprevir, bisoprevir, and PEG and RIVA, which provide the best cure rates and for which patient population? So are treatment-naive patients the best responders, prior relapsers, prior null responders, prior cirrhotics, or HCV mono-infected patients? And I know you're all very um, up-to-date now on the viral phonetics and what a null responder is, so uh, hopefully we can see if I guys get this. So, so a majority of you said treatment naive, which I think would be a very reasonable response. Um, but indeed, prior relapsers are the patients who respond the best. And if you think about it, a prior relapser has already shown that they're highly responsive to pagan riba. So when you add that additional DAA on, those patients actually perform extremely well, whereas, non, whereas null, null responders and cirrhotics actually respond quite poorly. And I'm going to show you some data now to support that. So this is a summary slide of many, many studies to show you how, how um, telaprevir and bisoprevir performed in the HCV mono-infected patient. So what you can see here is if you look at the relapsers, they had the best response with rates up to over 80%. And the poorest response came in those null responders with cirrhosis. And clearly, these are the groups of patients who need the best and most potent therapies to come as quickly as possible because they have the most to benefit, but they have the poorest response rate. And if you look at our co-infected patients and where they've responded, now both phase two have been published in the literature, um, Mark Swakowski being first author on both of those, you can see that our numbers in HIV co-infection come in very close to 70%, which is exactly where the phase threes for mono-infected came in. This is very exciting, exciting data for our co-infected patients. Now, I've given these to you really more as a resource <laughs> because um, there's no need to summarize this in any way, shape, or form, nor could I. But the bottom line is that if you look at telaprevir and drug-drug interactions, we now have a lot of data to tell us which drugs can be used safely and which can't. And that's summarized here in the right-hand column, um, which is extremely helpful. The more of this data that we have, the easier it is to treat one of these patients when you're not having to switch around ARVs as frequently. Um, for bosepravir, we still um, are, are having some difficulty with understanding the safety of proteas inhibitors. But luckily, these are included in the phase three study, and we should have that data as time moves on. Um, and so you have a little less options with this, but, but ultimately options nonetheless. And so, so this can be done safely. It can be done is obviously off-label use at this point in time if you can't get them into a clinical trial. But, um, but there are many centers across the country who are treating these patients and actually getting very good outcomes. So the next question as we move really into all of the exciting data from the most recent meeting is, which genotype have we recently learned is more difficult to treat than expected with these new HCV agents. So one, two, three, or four. Excellent. So 37% um, gave the answer of three, which is great. So, and that would be correct. And I think quite surprising for a lot of us as this came to be. 
genotype twos and threes forever have been lumped together, presuming they always had better responses than genome ones or fours. But ultimately, as we're now going into interferon-free regimens and shortened courses, we're beginning to see that twos and threes are falling out. It's actually being quite different. Um, and critically important to understand when you're managing a patient with one of those two genotypes. So let's show you some of the data behind all of this. So the first drug we're going to talk about is this NS5B polymerase inhibitor. Again, should, should hopefully be FDA approved within the end, by the end of the year. This is a pan-genotypic nuke, so all genotypes, but it has a hole, and that hole is genotype 3 at this point in time, where it doesn't, it isn't as active against genotype 3. I think the one thing that's been surprising to a lot of us who do this but are ID trained is, I think we've always believed that resistance occurs with any direct-acting anti or antiretroviral. And in this case, this drug has an unbelievable barrier to resistance in that literally one patient out of over 2,000 has developed resistance, even in patients who relapse. Um, and so it's a really great backbone drug when you think about being able to protect the other drugs within a combination therapy. So this slide that I'm showing you um, is what I would say is the next standard of care for the treatment of hepatitis C. So this is going to be the genotype 1 um, approval, hopefully, by the FDA. And so this is what I think most of us were gonna, was going to be interferon-free, but what this is really called is interferon-sparing. And what that means is you're not going to get as much interferon, but you're still getting some interferon. Now, 12 weeks of interferon, which is what this was, sofosbuvir, peg, and ribavir for 12 weeks is actually pretty reasonable when you think about the cure rates that they're achieving, which are over and very close to 90% cure, 12 weeks of triple therapy. So it's hard to complain about this, but I think we all have our sights set on something that's interferon-free. That being said, most of our patients are pretty excited about the, this opportunity. And I'm going to show you that, indeed, this study is ongoing in co-infected patients as well. And so we're going to have data to support the use of this in a co-infected patient. And hopefully, ultimately, that will be added to the label. So let's talk about genotype 2, 3s. And this is treatment-naive patients. And this is where the interferon-free is coming now. Okay, so interferon-free for genotype 2s in particular. If you look at this data, 12 weeks, sofosbuvir and weight-based ribavirin, and the cure rate was close to 70%, but if you break it down by 2s versus 3s, it was almost 100% for a genotype 2 patient. 12 weeks, sofosbuvir and ribavirin, and you're done if you're a genotype 2. Um, but for a genotype 3, clearly we have more work to do. And the question is, how is that done? Is it done by adding pegylated interferon to that treatment for 12 weeks instead? Or is it done by extending the course of therapy from 12 to something else? And I think we get a little bit of a hint with that with the fusion study, which was in treatment experience patients, uh, but that ultimately showed us that indeed just a bump from 12 to 16 weeks made a big difference. Um, and what we also learned was that cirrhosis made a big difference. And so I think moving forward, the paradigm is going to be if you're a geno 2 without cirrhosis, you get 12 weeks with no interferon and you're done. If you're a geno 2 with cirrhosis, you're going to get an extended course of therapy plus or minus interferon, depending probably on how well that patient could tolerate it. And if you're a 3, regardless of cirrhosis, you're either going to get a prolonged course of therapy or interferon because you need something more. And I think that's how. I don't know how this is going to be hashed out with the FDA given the submission, but hopefully they'll give us some guidance on how, how to work through this in these patients. So then for those of you who said number 1, interferon-free is coming for genotype 1, I don't want to, you to leave sad and blue. Um, and you might need Glenn Treisman leaving because he's already gone. But what I can show you is that there is great hope with regards to genotype 1 patients in terms of an interferon-free regimen. And that simply means that instead of doing one DAA, you need a combination of DAAs. You need two, you need three, but that ultimately a combination of DAAs 
can get rid of interferon, and indeed can also get rid of ribavirin. And so several companies have all oral regimens, and I'm going to show you a number of them. This is Gilead's all oral combination. So Fosbivir plus Ladipasvir. This is a NUP plus their NS5A. And what this shows you is in treatment naives and null, genotype 1, 100% cure with 12 weeks of therapy. This has also been released as part of the Lone Star study, which will probably be presented at the liver meeting in November in, in the US, which is that um, without ribavirin in eight weeks, they can cure the same number of patients. So this is extremely exciting, and I think ultimately really shows you how it's not, this is not going to be a one-stop shop. Um, it's, you're going to sit down, you're going to look at the patient, you're going to think about the patient, you're going you're to look at all of their numbers, what are their level of fibrosis is, et cetera, and then you're going to make a decision for that patient sitting in front of you, not for you know, patients who are a part of a clinical trial, if you will. But I think very exciting, but probably still two to three years away from that perspective. So what about cefospavir and co-infection, which I think is critically, critically important. And what I can show you is that that triple therapy that I said was going to be the new standard of care moving forward um, is being done, is an active trial um, in genotype 1, 2, and 3 patients. And hopefully, we'll have this data as this drug is approved so that we know how to use it in a co-infected patient, which may initially be off-label, but absolutely, hopefully, will be part of the package insert, ultimately. And then also, we have the phase 3 study of cefospavir and weight-based ribavirin, so the interferon-free, which was genotype 1, 2, and 3, um, naives and 2, 3 experience. That study has closed, and that data will be presented over the next year. Um, and I think, so this is extremely exciting to have this sort of data in a co-infected population this early in the course of development. And I think we would all argue that this is the way it should be done. And luckily, most companies are getting that and doing it. And I think as providers who take care of these patients, we need to continue to advocate for that very strongly. Um, so this is just for you, to, for you to see. They've studied you know, the, the drug interactions of this drug with a lot of RARVs and shown that there are no significant clinical interactions. So very nice with regards to the combinations of, of, a, of ARVs um, in our contacted patients. So simipravir, this is the other drug FDA, that hopefully we have to approve by the end of the year. This is a protease inhibitor, so it's in the same class as telaprevir and bisepravir. Second wave, meaning there are still issues with, so if you fail telaprevir and bisepravir, you're not going to be able to do well with this drug for years out until your resistant mutants uh, uh, kind of get back to a baseline level. I mean, we don't have a lot of data of actually re-exposure at this time, and so we have no idea what that means in the long run. But ultimately, this is a very nice drug. It is once a day dosed. Um, there are not significant uh, safety issues. And, uh, and I will show you, however, there are some drug-drug interaction issues that, are gonna need to, that you're going to need to work around if you consider using this in an HIV-infected patient. So in terms of data for a mono-infected patient, what I can show you is that this is not 12 weeks of therapy, but for 91% of patients, it's 24 weeks of therapy, so six months. So we're immediately going from half patients needing 48 weeks to now over 90% are getting six months of therapy if you use this drug with an 86% cure. I think that's uh, a really nice option for folks. And I think what's, what's very interesting and, and thought-provoking, if nothing else, is that for those of you who answered number one, you could come up and argue with me after that indeed interferon-free for genotype 1s is going to be available because cefospavir will be approved. Simipravir will be approved, and indeed, they have used them in combination for genotype 1 patients who were previous null responders. And what this shows you is that regardless of whether you got ribavirin or not, and regardless of whether you got 24 weeks of therapy or not, you achieved very high rates of cure with that combination. The problem is this is not moving forward in phase 3, and so any use in combination of these drugs would be off-label and likely extremely expensive. 
Um, but that being said, I think when these drugs are approved, people are going to try to use this. And it obviously brings great hope for patients because the cure rates are exceptional and a very difficult to treat patient population. So I did want to show you this. This is data from CROI um, of simipavir in our co-infected patients. So this, I just wanted to quickly show you the design because this is the first evidence that we've gotten that response-guided therapy in co-infection works. Because if you think about the phase two studies that were published that I showed you earlier um, in that bisipavir to lapavir gra uh, graph, that was a year of therapy. So if you're treating a co-infected patient right now, technically, they're getting a year of therapy no matter what, whether they're relapsers, whether they have rapid viral kinetics, which, to be honest with you, is really painful um, for a lot of these patients because they're probably getting over-treated. So now we have data for response-guided therapy that I'm going to show you. And these were naives and relapsers who had the option for response-guided therapy. And that was having an, an undetectable viral load by week four and continuing through week 12. Um, this shows you the ARVs that were allowed. So remember I told you they have some drug-drug interactions here. Um, they have done the studies, which is critically important. At least we know um, what the interactions are and what the safety issues are around the drug. So they included ropivirine, raltegravir, miravirac, and infuvertide as their kind of primary drug with the backbone of NRTIs. So I show you here what the issues are with regards to, to, to co-dosing. Um, and, then, and then here are the numbers. So if you look at patients overall, SVR12 was almost 80%, which is fantastic. This is a once daily dose drug, so it's very well tolerated and easy for these patients to take. And the difference across cirrhotics or non-cirrhotics was not, uh, I mean, the naives and relapsers was not a dramatic difference. And in the white bars here are actually hep C mono-infected patients, again, showing you very similar response rates to the HCV mono-infected cohort. So how many of these patients actually were able to have shortened courses of therapy, which is the critically important part of this, right? No one wants interferon for a year. None of us want to give interferon for a year, to be honest with you. Um, and so ultimately, if you looked at the mono-infected trials, um, the Quest trial that I showed you earlier, 91% of patients, right, were shortened. And in HIV, 88%. Those are the same viral kinetics, which means our HIV patients respond extremely well to these drugs. Uh, so my, my continued argument is that they are no different um, with regards to their response to these agents. Um, and ultimately, yes, it's complicated, and we need to understand the safety. But with regards to these drugs, they, they, they respond beautifully. And indeed, you could argue are a patient population who need them as much, if not more, than the hep C mono-infected cohorts. All right, so I also wanted to introduce you to fordopravir, which is another protease inhibitor that should be kind of you know, moving forward and is pretty far along in development as well. And they also are already in phase three for co-infection. Um, and I think for many of us that do this, you know, we just never believe that this would happen as quickly in our co-infected patients as it has. So they also are looking at response-guided therapy. And then, and the main reason I, give, I put this slide up for you all is to show you that, indeed, they have looked at a lot of ARVs. So this is going to be a really nice drug in terms of the ability to, to take multiple ARVs in the setting of this drug. Um, and while there are interactions, they are able to adjust the dose of the HCVPI for safety purposes. And so that is how the study is being done. Um, and I can show you it's still very early in the, in the treatment, but ultimately their virologic responses so far is that over 90% are undetectable. Over 80% if they're, um, if they're uh, naive, 90% of their relapsers are undetectable by week 12, which is very much the same as a mono-infected patient. So again, same thing. I'm sure you've heard it enough, so I'm going to try to quit saying it now. But, um, but it's something that I think is ext extremely important for us to understand so that we um, prioritize these patients for treatment. So the, so the last two drugs that I'm going to talk about um, are the Cladosphere and then the Abbott program. 
Um, and Decladosphere is the NS5A. And is, so this is similar to Ledipasphere, which is Gilead's NS5A. Again, a pangenotypic. So this is the only other pangenotypic drug that's kind of this far along in the pipeline and, uh, and has been also studied in uh, over 4,000 patients and no concerning safety signal. So these are drugs that really should make it to the clinic for us. And, and the reason I put this up is that this is the only other drug that has activity against genotype you know, 3 patients. So, and is actually going to be hopefully approved for genotype 2, 3 patients. So another option, and I think it's always good to have multiple options for your patients when it comes to picking a regimen that's best for them. So it shows you that with the cladosphere peg and riba for 12 weeks um, and genotype 2, 3 naives, patients perform very well. So this is 2's over 80% cure in 12 weeks, which is fantastic. And in 3's, Again, showing that threes are different. Um, they are special, and they want to be known as, as not genotype 2-3. And so their cure rate is a little bit lower, but still very, very good, and shortening the course of therapy by, by, by half compared to the standard of care. All right, so now the story is the same. So this is another interesting study that looks at interferon-free um, for genotype 1 patients. Another possibility, maybe before approval of any, um, of any uh, a compound that comes out of a single company, this is cefosbuvir and decladosphere now in combination in genotype two, three, 1, 2, 3 naives. And, and I mean, it's hard to argue this, right? 100% uh, cure, essentially. It doesn't matter who you were or where you came from, what you did. Did you get 12 weeks, 24 weeks, ribavirin or not? The bottom line is you had a 100% cure. Um, so these are the data that suggest that ribavirin will be going away. Clearly, interferon will not be required. And ultimately, we're going to have maybe fix those combination pills or a couple of pills that resembles very much what our HIV patients are used to already um, for limited periods of time. I mean, we are literally looking at 8 to 12 weeks of treatment. And this is you know, three years away if your patients can get access. And I think that becomes the bigger question mark as we move through this is, um, you know, will, will our patients get access? How will we pay for this? How will we get this for our patients? Um, but ultimately, I think that's something that we're all going to have to move forward and address um, with, uh, with the federal government and, and other payers. So this shows you, I think, something that is also very exciting. And this is the idea of treating patients who have already failed triple therapy. So I don't know how many of you out there are treating patients or have failures. I mean, we could see a raise of hands. How many of you have had a patient fail triple therapy um, already? Yeah. So, so, and you're not all HCV treaters, right? So they're out there. I mean, we, we all have them. And, and ultimately, most of those patients had severe liver disease, which is why they got treatment in the first place. And you're really desperate to find something for them. And I think what's really exciting is seeing data like this, where they took patients who had failed Bosepravir or Tilaprovir, um, and they treated them with Sofosbuvir Declasphere plus or for 24 weeks. And again, this patient actually showed up for the SBR24 visit, so they're actually cured. They just didn't show up for SBR12. 100% cure, and it didn't matter if you got Rubavirin or not. So these are phenomenal drugs when used in combination, and, uh, and I think ultimately bring great hope for our patients in the long run. All right, so I'm sure you guys are bored of looking at bar graphs. <laughs> so this is the last study to show you, um, and, uh, and this is the aviator. Um, I just want to make sure that we're fair across the board because there are so many phenomenal options moving forward. So this is actually the combination of three drugs. Um, so this is Abbott's protease inhibitor, which requires ritonavir boosting. This is their NS5A, and this is their non-nuke. Um, and so you've now heard of four different drug classes that are being used in all kinds of types of combinations. Um, but what you can see here is plus or minus ribavirin for 12 weeks, and they included nulls and naives, nulls in red here. And you can see that over 95% cure 
Uh, well, actually, I should probably focus on. So 87% cure if you didn't have ribavirin. Um, and then across the board, whether you got quad treatment, whether you were 1A, 1B, I mean, all of these kind of baseline factors that we think of as being poor predictors of treatment, it didn't matter. You had an over 90% cure rate um, with this regimen. And I think when you start getting to numbers that high, uh, the one outlier here is this didn't include cirrhotics. Most of these studies didn't include cirrhotics. And that's the group that we really need to get better information on and more information on moving forward because they're the ones who need these drugs the most. All right. So in summary, um, I think I you know, beat you over the head with the fact that there are a lot of drugs coming um, and that there are a lot of these drugs are coming with phase three trials and co-infection. Hopefully, will either be part of their NDA submissions or will be moved into the, um, into the approval um, after the fact. And I think that's critically important for us in terms of getting access, getting payers to cover these drugs, et cetera. Interferon-free is coming for genotype 2 by the end of the year. And I think that's a very exciting story for those patients because we still have plenty of them. But I think ultimately the jury is still out on how you manage a genotype 2 cirrhotic and how you manage a genotype 3 period. Um, and I think, again, that's going to be prolonged courses of therapy and it's maybe plus or minus interferon. Um, which still genotype 3s are highly responsive to. So you can probably cure a genotype 3 in 12 weeks with the addition of interferon to that dual regimen. For interferon um, free for genotype 1-3, as I said, for ones especially, that's maybe two to three years away. You've seen those studies. These patients are performing, ex or these drugs are performing extremely well in these patient populations. Um, but we need to get through that to understand safety and how they need to be used appropriately. Um, but at least we have interferon sparing coming in 12 weeks of interferon is much better than 48. I think we would all agree with that. Um, and so I think with that, uh, we have our follow-up question that I think I gave you all the answer to in the beginning. Oops. So we'll let you guys uh, show that some of you at least were listening and um, know now when will interferon-free therapy for genotype 1 infection be coming by FDA approval. All right. In the next one to three years. Now that just shows you that you guys have learned a lot. <laughs> Excellent. So I am happy to take any questions. Suzanne, that was a great summary. Again, we're happy to take questions up here or at the microphone. Suzanne, given all the drugs that are out there, do, are you treating any patients with interferon-containing regimens in 2013? And if so, why? So I think, I think that's a fantastic question, and, and we spent a lot of time talking about this um, in the workshop yesterday. You know, I, think, I think there are a couple of issues. So, so one is I am waiting on a lot of patients. So I could give you, I could name a few that we have decided to start treating with triple therapies for multiple reasons. One, they have severe liver disease. They are beginning to develop portal hypertension, and we're very nervous about waiting 6, 9, 12 months. I think that everyone realizes there's a reality, even if these drugs are approved on October 1st. So I practice mostly in the VA, and in order for me to prescribe my first dose of bocepivir or trilapivir in the VA, it took nine months from FDA approval. And so the reality of getting access to these drugs, I mean, this is a critically important part of the decision. So if I have a stage 0-1-2, am I waiting? Absolutely. Unless the patient adamantly wants interferon, and I've never met a patient like that before. Dr. Treisman probably has, but I have not. Um, so, so that is not a, that's, that's an easy conversation to have with a patient. But when they're a stage 3, 4, they're an HIV-infected patient, 
you know, you don't have a long history of staging, so you only have a single biopsy that, you know, from last year as opposed to a biopsy 10 years ago that shows stable disease. I think that you can make the argument for treatment. And the one thing that we kind of talked about yesterday in the, in, the, in the workshop is the nuance of that is that if you're using these drugs, the idea of using a lead-in phase, whether you're using telaprovir, mesoprovir or not, to understand their response. So we know clearly that if patients don't have a greater than one log decline by week four of lead-in, they're not going to do well with treatment. And so those are maybe patients where it's just not worth the risk of the additional treatment and the cost. Um, but if they have a great response in that four-week lead-in, then I think those are still patients that you could argue with significant liver disease would benefit. I mean, if I started someone today, I could cure them before I have access to these drugs next year. Well, I just have interest, how many people currently have a patient on interferon? A few. How many people have had a patient on interferon in the last six months? Again, a few. So I, I, After I, listening to Susanna, how many of you plan to have a patient on interferon? in the next six months, other than the late-stage patients she's talking about. <laughs> All right, Dr. Sag. So between now and our meeting next year, it's possible, likely, that at least some Epravir and some Osipir will be approved. However, because of how the Pharmacet was moved to Gilead, et cetera, while those drugs had been used together early on and you showed data, they are not being developed in that way, and maybe the clastivir will be also available. So available to us theoretically off-label, we might be mixing these things together. What do you? What would be your thought about how you might be practicing uh, nine months from now, and when all these options are theoretically available, but probably we don't have, we won't have phase three data nor an FDA no. indication. I mean, look at it this way: I've been treating patients for the past year and a half off-label, right? So I don't have any problem with off-label use personally as long as I have safety. Um, and so using the drug-drug interaction data of those drugs in HIV and co-infected patients, having phase three data showing both of those drugs are very safe um, in HIV co-infected patients, if somebody would pay for it, would I use them? Absolutely. But of course, you're not going to have drug-drug uh, interaction uh, data uh, among two of those drugs, are no, you? No, no, no. You're, you're not going to have that. But, but ultimately, if you look at the interactions, um, the ones that are allowed are minimal, and so in combination, we use lots of drugs that have interactions that are not clinically um, relevant that we use in combination with quite a bit. So I'm comfortable with yeah, that. Yeah, I mean, those early phase one, two studies, especially the phase two studies, did use the two drugs together. Yeah, in mono-infected patients. Yeah, right. yeah, so in mono-infected mono patients, yeah, no, so it's, it's a no-brainer. I was, I was referring to mono. And I think as long as you can come up with an HIV regimen right. that is then compatible with those two, but so, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, I think the issue is, you could poll providers, and we do these things and talk to a lot of colleagues who do HCV, and, and everyone says in the first few, <laughs> first few months of approval, um, it can be you know, like the wild, wild west and no one's controlling it. So everyone's going to try to write for these drugs in combination and see how many patients they can cure. So, so what I would suggest just to everyone is, is everyone should sort of track their experiences. If, if you're going to use these things in that way, which sort of makes some sense, we ought to be tracking the outcomes both in terms of safety and in terms yeah, of absolutely. Uh, activity just so we can know what's how it plays out. Right. All right, Dr. Iran. Yeah, I already did some on-the-side lobbying, but um, uh, I think you've made the point very nicely that with DAAs, the um, HIV, our co-infected patients really are no longer special. Um, and, and therefore, I, I don't think they need special studies to prove that um, uh, these drugs can be used. Um, though I was challenged to say, you said, 
for example, you're using tilapavir for supplement, quote, off-label. Um, I actually haven't read the label. Does it actually say don't use them in HIV? It's not off-label, is it? Well, it, it says, actually, I would have to look. It doesn't say it's contraindicated by any means, um, right. but it just says that there's not data for the use of these drugs in HIV co-infected patients. Oh, I have that, to look doesn't it sort of says that? Yes, right. it does address that there is not well, data. So, so um, this that's going to change. Several people in the room, but but maybe for the label for sofosfavir and semeprevir, that we should, should think very carefully about um, how that's phrased, so that uh, insurance companies don't prevent us from using those drugs um, uh, in our not prevent us, but make it very hard for us to use those drugs in co-infected patients. Um, I can tell you that there are definitely. I've heard it time and time again from multiple practices that, they, that someone cannot get access to these drugs simply because it is considered off-label use and it will not be approved. So I think we do under, I mean, this is a population that should not be, that should have access. Um, and the fact that it's more difficult because of it. Now, I understand safety is critically important. But once we have that safety, these things should be addressed right. as rapidly. And PK, of course, is essential. But once we yes. do that, we don't need a separate phase three study to tell us that. Right. Know, why, why don't we yeah, no, that? I think, right. So, so a phase two to show PK and make sure all that's safe. And then in phase three, they're all included and you stratify by HAP or something. Who cares? But I, I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, well, I'm sure that there are about 40 people in the audience who are listening carefully to what the practitioners are planning. Uh, but um, so that just to be clear on what you and Joe had to say, what makes us think that? Uh, co-infected patients are going to respond as well. These are directly acting agents, but we don't know that much about exactly how what what factors correlate with the response. So how do we know that co-infection is going to have such a great response? Well, I mean, other than the data that I showed you, that I mean, I think that is in a patient, which is the best data to argue, the viral kinetics, et cetera, the phase two studies where the SVRs were exactly the same, I think that's that argues itself, right? I mean, you don't have to argue beyond that. We never, as uh, far as I know. CD4 counts and so on. I mean, presume, yeah. are you presuming that there is no virologic or immunologic factor that in HIV that is related to response for DAAs? That is correct. Okay. Well, I, I hope that's true. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we've seen, generally speaking, that they respond as well. Um, now, clearly, there was a difference um, when interferon was alo alone. There was clearly a difference, and we believe that it had something to do with the, the, the innate response. But in this setting, you know, we do believe innate response is playing a role here because clearly in some of these interferon-free regimens, IL-28, for example, still matters. But, but I think it matters a lot less, and therefore when you throw HIV in, it, it's just you can't weed out. Joe, don't go away. We're always interested in your comment. Come That's back. Right. as well to DAAs. There's no separate study for diabetics. They don't respond as well. We right, right, they don't, but you, but it's not contraindicated. But, you know, I, I just right. think that, um, you know, um, uh, to have, and I've heard the same thing as Susanna, that people have not been able to get to Lapavir and Posepavir in for co-infected patients, yeah, or they have to go through mountains of paperwork. And, and um, you know, it shouldn't be off-label, whether it says recommended for, I mean, they have Hep C, that's the label. So. Yeah. I just think it's critical that we, we advocate for our co-infected patients and make sure that they have access to sofosfavir, semeprevir, decladosfavir when they're approved, not you know two years later when the phase three studies are done. No, and I think that's the, the key point. I mean, the fact that the phase twos for bosipravir were just published, and these drugs have been approved now for you know basically two years, is uh, it's a shame. Um, but but I think I feel hopeful that moving forward that is not going to be the case. I think. 
maybe maybe we've learned our lesson. Last question, which you could probably give a whole lecture on, but what do you see as the role of liver biopsy pre or post therapy? Yeah, so that is a, yeah, you guys have time. We still have 28 minutes now, I mean 28 seconds. So <laughs> I think this is a, a critically important question. And for many of you who practice HIV and practice HIV in the Ryan White setting, et cetera, where, where money is a critical issue and part of the practice. I would say, so I, used, I trained at Duke. I trained to do my own liver biopsies. I used to believe everyone should be biopsied by me. In particular, but 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 I is that I, is that funding your children's college education? <laughs> I wish that were true. I'm, I still get paid ninety salary, um, so so that I think that has changed, and my my practice has changed in the past eighteen months. And, and there's a reason. The reason you stage a patient's liver disease is to make a decision on risk and benefit of treatments, and is to understand what other medical care they need, whether it's HCC screening, esophageal varices screening, monitoring their MEL, referring for transplant. And the difference is, as the, the, the tolerance of therapies improves, the efficacy and the safety improves, that risk balance now tips very much out of favor of liver biopsy. But you still have to know if they have cirrhosis, right? Because treatment may change. If you have cirrhosis, you may do something different. And you still have to take care of their liver disease if they have cirrhosis or severe stage disease. But we now have non-invasive technologies. Um, either serologic technologies like a fibroshore that can do that or a pre-score or the fiber scan which is a non-invasive ultrasound technology which was just FDA approved is also another option and so so the bottom line is I now use a non-invasive technology to determine cirrhosis or no cirrhosis and it's only in patients where I can't do that or I'm not confident in the result that I then liver biopsy the patient. Well, and which you use fiber scan or fiber shirt or both? Well so the issue for fiber, so we have a fiber scan at Duke because we were part of the studies, but I don't have it at the VA. So for me, it depends on what side of the street I'm on. Okay. <laughs> on that side of Irwin or that side of Irwin. Um, and so, so I think ultimately for most folks in this room, they're not, I think there are nine fiber scans in the country at this point in time, and it's going to cost about 130 grand to get one. And at this point, we don't know how to bill for it. And so I think the reality is fiber scan is not yet in practice, but fiber sure, a pre-score, those sorts of scores are. And I think with regards to being able to know cirrhosis or non-cirrhosis, they perform well enough. Um, ultimately, you know, I think you have to utilize all, all of the tests that you have available to be confident in that because you're going to use it to make a critical decision. But beyond that, I think it's a good tool to use. All right. And the last question. There are a couple of questions about why HCV is so common in the U.S. and not so common elsewhere. And do you want to just go over what the global figures are since that's clearly not exactly the case? Yeah. I mean, so I think HCV, the most recent um, uh, Prevalence was about 180 million worldwide. Um, and there are very high prevalences in specific countries, for example, Egypt, um, you know, obviously in Asia, et cetera. And so um, in, in this country, the estimate is around 4.4 million, somewhere between 1.3 to 1.6%. Clearly higher in specific populations, for example, patients born between 1945 and 65, patients with um, HIV disease, other comorbidities. And so um, it's a very prevalent disease across the globe um, and is, and, and is going to cause a lot of liver disease over the next two decades. And presumably as there's more, as there's therapy, there's more screening globally, we may find that those are underestimates. Uh, that is correct. Yeah, so, okay, well, thanks very much, Susanna, for a great talk. Don't go anyplace. Uh, we'd like to have our other panel members come up.